freely he justified. Amen? Amen. Justified, pretty great. And because most of us in this auditorium would be singing that song with full voice because we identify with that, uh, we also sang that first song with full voice. That's a really dangerous song, right? Jesus, call me out upon the water. Take my, play, my feet to the place where, where feet may fail, but my eyes are on you. Keep my eyes above the water. It, inviting God to do dangerous things in your life. To, to call you to that place where nothing else matters except His glory. And, and that's a really dangerous thing to ask for, but a good thing. You're going to discover that as we look at the passage this morning... It's all about God's glory. And, and we love it when the Bible's all about us, when it's all about our needs. But I'm here to tell you that's not today. Uh, this is all about God and the things that we need to understand about Him. And, and Paul comes to a closure with this passage this morning, Romans chapter 11, if you have your Bible. And we'll get to follow along there. It's just the last few verses of that chapter. But as you're turning there, I'm going to invite you to bow your head with me and pray that God would shape our minds and our thoughts as we go into His Word. Would you join me in that? Father, I ask for every single person that's present in this moment, both in the auditorium and watching online, that we would be fully attuned to the things that you want to communicate to us. The very good likelihood that the things that we were involved in an hour ago or will be an hour from now are occupying our minds, and it takes a while to decompress. And you do that through your music, Father, and we thank you for reminding us again through praise who you are. But we ask that you would amplify that now, and that you would do that through your word, and you would cause your word to speak, not only because it's life-giving, but because it is truth. And so we ask that you would speak to our hearts. We pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. If you consider that in no uncertain terms whatsoever, the Bible is extraordinarily clear that we all fall short of the glory of God, then it's a logical leap to come to the next step to think that, well, we also then must vastly misunderstand the glory of God. If we fall short, and that's what Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then to think that we underestimate it and we misunderstand it is not too hard to grasp because it's something that we can't really attain to. Yet we read things that are kind of bewildering like the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I know some of you are familiar with this. Let me put it on the screen for you. It says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How many here have ever read that before? Just out of curiosity, a few of you, about 50% of the room, okay? The chief end of man is to glorify God. Uh, if you're not familiar with a catechism, um, it's, it's think Twitter for the ancient world, okay? Catechisms were a really concise way, limited number of characters. You had to really get your thought out there in a very compressed way of communicating a truth. So Twitter for the ancient world. For people who were new coming into the church, people who were new to believing in Jesus, the ancient church had to find a way to help people understand doctrine, 
truths about God. And so they came up with catechisms. Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is taking the Bible in a nutshell, boiling it right down and saying, you want to know what the Bible contains in a Twitter phrase? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and that leaves us a bit bewildered. It did me as a teenager and and as a young man in my 20s and 30s thinking, how do I glorify God? He's already glorious. How can I bring anything more to Him? Yet, as I read the Bible and read the Bible during that period of time, I've discovered it's true. Our supreme purpose, the reason He built us in the first place, is to glorify Him. And a failure to glorify God is the trademark of spiritual rebellion. That that's it in a nutshell. You refuse to bring glory to God, that's rebellion. And at the very beginning of Romans, think back if you were here in June of 2016 when we started the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, Paul boiled it down and said, anybody who refuses to glorify God has no excuse whatsoever. Let me remind you, Romans 1 uh, verse 19 says this, that which is known about God is evident within them, and by this point he's talking about all of creation, everybody, every human who's ever lived. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. If failure to bring glory to God is the evidence of spiritual rebellion, then the natural link is this. If you fall short of the glory of God and the responsibility of that primary component, that ultimately leads to eternal separation from God. So Jesus came to help us understand what it means to be in relationship with God and to bring glory to Him. So as you come to the end of Romans chapter 11, Paul has to summarize all of this with a doxology. You're going to get to see it in just a minute. And his doxology is simply just a busting out of praise for God. Literally coming to the place where he says everything that God does is to bring glory to Himself. Now, very likely, if you're new to church, you're hearing that and you're thinking, and maybe even if you're not new to church, you're thinking, man, that sounds extraordinarily egotistical, like even arrogant, Uh, really self-centered. Is that really who he is? And the reason we respond that way, because in our human nature, we hate it when other humans self-glorify, and so it makes us kind of recoil, and then immediately in our human mind, we begin thinking, well, what about me? Where am I in this thing? If it's all about God, how do I fit in? Well, with great clarity, I want you to hear this. The supreme benefit of God's plan to rescue humanity is to bring us eternal life. Amen? Amen. The supreme benefit of God's plan to rescue humanity is to bring us eternal life. But that's a bonus. That's just the bonus. The supreme purpose of His plan The reason for it is to bring glory to Himself. His building of our planet, it's all about His glory. The creation of our solar system, the stars, the galaxies, all of the universe, it's about bringing glory to Him. The reason He created heaven is all about bringing glory to Him. The surpassing purpose of every created thing in the universe is to bring glory to God. 
Let me back this up from Scripture. These are some verses you can write down maybe in your notes to remind yourself of this. First one comes from Isaiah. And here's the background on this. Isaiah tells us by the time we get to chapter 6 that he's caught up into the presence of God. God invites him into the throne room and he stands before God and he sees the amazing wonders of God's throne room. And he says the first thing his eyes land on are these glowing orange beings, seraphim they're called, angels who are cruising back and forth above the throne of God and they're calling out, holy, holy, holy. Now, they're doing antiphonal praise according to the way it's written in Scriptures. So it's not just the statement, holy, 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 but rather as one cries out, another seraphim cries out, and it's like a round in a song, and it keeps going back and forth. Holy, 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 holy. And it's echoing off the walls of heaven. And watch the rest of the verse, what they say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6.3. The whole earth is full of his, what church? Glory. Now they're in heaven talking about God, but they're saying earth is full of his glory. Now maybe you're thinking right now, well, well, of course, Mark, that's what angels were built for, right? Isn't that why God built them? That's what they're supposed to do. That's true, but so were the stars. Look with me on the screen. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And by that way, he's talking about the heaven, the second heaven, in the sense that heaven outside of this earth, where the solar system is at. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Or what about this one, Isaiah 43.20? The beast of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches. That's God saying that. Have you ever thought about that before? And it's not just the animal life. He says, even the snails and the crabs in the sea, they're built to glorify me. Now, that's all of the created world. What about you? Well, this next verse is really convicting. And it comes from 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's so convicting because that means... How you bank, the conversations you have at work and at school, what you do with your time on the internet, the television shows you watch, everything you do. Would that we could remember that verse throughout the course of a day? Everything I'm doing is supposed to be about the glory of God. That's a really convicting verse. See, what God is saying is all other goals are subservient to this goal. And that helps a really great deal when you come to Romans chapter 11 to understand that. Especially if things aren't working out the way you want them to in your life right now. Because that's what's going on for Paul. If you've been here over the course of the summer, you've heard me say that his social circle, his network of friends, his nation has completely rejected Jesus. They don't like him. They don't want anything to do with him. And yet Paul is the guy who said, God, I I totally understand who Jesus is. Take my feet up on the water. Let me walk where other people won't go. I want to be the one who keeps my eyes above the waves and just focused on you. See, he's called himself into a pretty dangerous place. And his friends have rejected Jesus. And he needs to understand that everything is about the glory of God, even when it looks like things are not going well, because God's causing all things to work together for good. Amen, New Hope? All things to work together for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
In your notes this morning, you see two aspects of God's glory. You see it up on the screen as well. The first one is the intrinsic glory of God, and and that's what he emanates. It's his. He possesses it. It just radiates from him. But the other form of glory is extrinsic glory, and that's the glory I trip over, especially as a younger man when I was trying to understand what, what does it mean for me to give glory to God. And then it came a day when I really began to understand what that means. For me to give glory to God actually means that this is something that's reflected in my life. It's the proclamation of the choices that I make, how I display God in me, how you display God in you that draws other people to relationship with God. That brings glory to God. It's a proclamation. Your life proclaims something and proclaims if you are a follower of Jesus that Jesus is your way. That God is your ultimate draw, and that's where extrinsic glory comes from. You you proclaim something, and you point people to God. So with a greater obligation, New Hope, believers in Jesus Christ should glorify God even greater because we've seen His grace and His mercy in our own life and in the lives of our friends who follow Jesus also. So we have greater reason to praise Him. So God's ultimate purpose is that all that he does brings glory to himself. So that takes us into Paul's ending of chapter 11. He ends with this really compelling reason for us to understand the glory of God and why he's relayed all of this detail to us through chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. He starts out in verse 25 by saying, there's a mystery going on here you need to know about. Watch verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now, if somebody says that to you, that's being a really polite way of saying, so that you don't think that you're all that, okay? If you want to insult somebody politely, just say, don't be wise in your own estimation. He's just saying, you're not as smart as you think you are. So the reason for that is because there's a partial hardening that's happened to Israel. There's the mystery going on. Finish the verse. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Ah, there it is. There's the reason for all this detail. There's a reason why he spent all this time working through this, and it actually has to do with you this morning. It actually partially to a degree relates to you. Now, remember, he just warned us. Last week, we looked at this. Don't be conceited about this issue. It's not like, well, I figured it out. Too bad they didn't. I know what this is all about. Too bad they don't get it. And he's talking about that in relation to his own nation. And now he tells those who are reading the book of Romans, there's a mystery going on here, verse 25, a partial spiritual hardening has happened to Israel, and God allowed it. God allowed something to happen here. Now, the hardening is time-limited that he's talking about. He says, until the fullness, meaning until there's a completion here. In other words, the hardening only lasts for God's predetermined time, a duration. It began when Israel originally rejected Jesus as Messiah, and it ends when the last Gentile has come in. I want to bear down on that phrase, has come in, because Jesus used it a lot. So look with me up on the screen. You see this Greek word. I don't know that it made it into your notes. And in the Greek language, it's pronounced eis erkomai. That's not so important, but it means kind of what you see in the Bible, has come in, but it means to enter into something. And Jesus used this phrase frequently. 
When you read the book of Matthew and you read the book of Mark and Luke and John, you find Jesus using the phrase, eis erkomai, when He speaks of people entering into the kingdom of God, entering into eternal life, eis erkomai. So what Paul is saying here is the unbelief of Israel lasts only until the complete number of Gentiles have entered into salvation. Because in each instance, Jesus was referring to entering into salvation. In other words, God's got a number, and He knows when that number is going to be full. And it could be today, it could be 500 years from now, we don't know, but God's got a number in mind, and He knows when that number is complete. And then that is going to begin events on this planet that will lead to Israel's ultimate redemption, and there will be mass revival on the planet of people who are Jews that have rejected Jesus. So Paul says in verse 26, part A, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, all here doesn't mean every single biological Jewish person. It means all who profess in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how the way he's using the word all here. When our son Derek studied in Australia, um, he was studying in a music program at Hillsong. And we went to Sydney, we got a chance to visit with him while he was there. And Lori wanted to put on a meal for the students that were in Derek's dorm. And there were a bunch of guys living with him in this particular house that he was in, and they all invited their girlfriends. And so we ended up with about 30 students there. And Lori wanted to cook them a traditional American dinner because um, most of them were from around the world, from France and from South Africa and some from Russia and Germany. And so a um, majority of them were from Australia. Well, Lori puts out on the counter uh, cherry pie, and then she puts out on the counter apple pie, and an Australian kid walks up to me and he said, ah, cherry pie, Americans love cherry pie. Well, I'm here to tell you not all Americans love cherry pie, right? I, you're looking at one right here. And, and I said that in a previous service and somebody came up to me and he said, I, I never dreamed the day would come, but I'm gonna have to leave the church. <laughs> How can you be from Michigan and not love cherry pie? Well, we'll talk about it later, but. I like apple pie. So she, but he, he made this general statement. All Americans, well, in the same way, Paul has made this statement, all Israel, and all doesn't mean every single one, but rather those who profess Jesus Christ as their Savior. Part of God's glory here is his absolute control over history. It is the evidence of his majesty. So, Things that have happened and will happen that are a result of God making a declaration, they happen exactly the way His Word declares it. It is indisputable. So just as surely as He temporarily set all Israel aside, He will in one day graft all believing Israel back into His tree of salvation. So Paul writes, verse 26, part B, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Now let's just see if we're all on the same page with this concept of where he's going. Say amen if you agree with this. God's promises are certain. In other words, everything he says can be trusted even if you've had broken trust in your life and it scarred you and, and it left you with great disappointment on a human level, 
we unfortunately translate that sometimes to God. Can I trust him just because he says I can trust him? I'm here to tell you, you absolutely can. God is trustworthy. His promises are certain, and they are precise. And so they will be fulfilled in exactly the way he determines, to every degree, in every way that he has determined. His word is absolute. So as Paul approaches the end here, he needs to speak about the glory of God found in God's integrity. So he begins quoting Isaiah, and he says, just as it is written, the deliverer will come And when that happens, he will remove, and this is my covenant. I made it with them. So I need to bear down on those five words. What is his covenant? He says, I'm going to remove sin. And we need to understand that statement because that directly relates to us. So look with me on the screen at these five words. I take away their sins. And I say this especially for people who are new to church this morning, maybe watching online. To take away something in this case means there has to be an eradication. Something has to be exterminated. From a spiritual point of view, there's got to be a purging going on of the very thing that separates us from the holy God. Now, we're church people here today, and so we would say, probably by and large, most of us would agree, salvation is found in Jesus. Amen? Okay? So salvation is found in Jesus, therefore, we have to say that salvation then is the removal of sin or the eradication of sin. The condition for salvation to happen is faith in Jesus. In order for Israel to be saved, sin has to be forgiven, and it's got to be removed. For that to happen, what is true for you today is true for them also. There has to be a turning to faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. But that's not happened yet. Although it will one day, Paul has to write something really, really hard in verse 28. So he says this, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. See, it's about you, Gentiles. For your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So because of Israel's rejection of Jesus, set aside. But Paul says, enemies of the gospel now, enemies of the church in order that church so that salvation would come to the rest of the world, but it's only temporary. But from the eternal standpoint, and he even worked election and predestination in there, he said, from God's choice, they're beloved because of the fathers, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because God made an oath with them. So during this period of time, you might even call them beloved enemies. It's like a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Beloved enemies. But God guarantees it's not going to be permanent Because the gifts and the calling, they're irrevocable. His plans are unalterable. Once he said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Here's a verse you might want to write down in your own Bible this morning if you have it open so that you remember it throughout the course of your lifetime. It comes from 1 Thessalonians, and it speaks about God's faithfulness. 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Isn't it great to know that you follow a God like that? He's faithful and dependable, and he will bring it to pass. 
Now, Paul summarizes his thoughts by coming to verse 30, talking about us and talking about them in the same sentence. Verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. It's a really complex way of saying God's using believers in Jesus to bring them to belief. And we need to understand this term mercy because we throw it around in the English language and it doesn't quite mean what the biblical word intends for it to mean. This word mercy, it's elieo in the Greek language, that that's not significant, but what's going on behind it is. Now, if you're thinking mercy, you're thinking compassion, you're on the right track. And we are compassionate towards things that interest us. So you might be at home maybe watching a commercial on television that pops up and something comes on about protecting animals that have been abused. Or or perhaps there's a picture of a child living in a third world country who's starving to death. And your heart's moved with compassion towards that child. But if you just tune it out and it goes on to the next commercial and you take no action, that's actually not mercy according to the Bible. According to the Bible, mercy actually has the component of action in there. See, mercy moves you to action. And so the mercy that's associated with God here, it moves him to do something. And because God knows that our greatest need is to have sin removed, to have it eradicated from our life, his mercy goes into action and it provides just exactly that. Let me show you the way that the writers of the Bible use the word mercy in relation to God. Look with me on the screen at Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness, that's His mercy, His loving kindness is everlasting. I hope internally, maybe even externally, you're saying amen right now because you know what? why that's significant is when you wake up tomorrow morning, His mercy is just as effective tomorrow as it is today. His mercy is just as powerful in your life next week Friday as it was the day that you came to faith in Jesus Christ. That's everlasting mercy. It never goes out of existence. And that's the way the writers are talking about it here. So Peter picks up on that and he begins talking about God's mercy. Let me show you the way that he used it. 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his megas mercy... His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So as a result, He can grant mercy to us and grace. And as He extends this forgiveness and grants it to us, the very thing which is not deserved, at the same time, He's withdrawing the punishment that we do deserve. Sounds a lot like grace, doesn't it? Giving us what we don't deserve and taking away what we do deserve. That's why grace and mercy are used so interchangeably in the Bible. We've traveled full circle now with Paul's case. We started in Romans chapter 9, came to chapter 10, and in chapter 11, Paul sums it all up by saying, my nation has abandoned the very Messiah that was sent to them. My social circle has no interest in Jesus. Maybe you can identify with that this morning. Maybe the people you go to school with and you work with have no interest in the things of God. 
You begin to feel what Paul's feeling here, and his heart is breaking. Remember, he's the guy who said, I would go to hell. I literally would go to hell if it meant the salvation of my friends. But we know that's not possible because he's obviously saved, a follower of Jesus. But that's how hard his heart is into this. So when we travel full circle, we recognize that he's saying, because of the unbelief of my nation, they're temporarily set aside. And God extended his grace and mercy to the rest of the world, to the Gentile world. And as a result, New Hope, you're here this morning. But check this. If God granted grace to us while we were still sinners, how much more will God extend his grace to Israel? Now, the biggest issue is this. Whether or not you're Jew or Gentile doesn't really matter when you get to this issue of salvation because salvation is based on mercy and on grace, not on merit. Doesn't matter where you were born, doesn't matter your social status, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your standing in the community, it doesn't matter all the good things that you may have done or may have not done. Salvation is extended to you because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Savior, not because of standing. So so if you're hearing this for the first time this morning, I want you to be really clear on this. If you've been working to earn God's favor, stop. Just stop. God says, it's a gift. I give it to you freely. Will you just receive it? It requires you turning from your life of sin and believing in my son, Jesus, who will give you forgiveness. And Paul says, here's the reason it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. The last verse is a theologically mountain of a mouthful. Verse 32, for God has shut up all, meaning all humanity, God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Now, disobedience is something we really want to understand, especially if you're a parent this morning. You've got a framework in your mind right now when you think of when you're raising your children, what disobedience looks like. Maybe as a, a young person who's still living at home, you're thinking of what disobedience looks like in your world. Let me give you the biblical view of disobedience. And and you need to see this particular Greek word on the screen, apatheia. Uh, Don't spend so much time with the word itself, but the definition. Because this is actually referring to disbelief. And we're talking about obstinate, obstinate refusal and a rebellion that's going on here. So this is different, a little bit different than disobedience of a child but there's still those tinges in there. There's an obstinate refusal, Paul is saying, to believe on the part of humanity, an obstinate refusal to acknowledge, an obstinate refusal to obey. Let me contrast this for you. As a teenager, I grew up in Whitehall, Michigan, which is over on the west side of Michigan. It's um, right on the Great Lakes. And we have a small lake there called White Lake. And typically after school, you could find me jumping on my bike as an 8, 9, 10-year-old, even 12-year-old, and running down to the lake to go fishing or go swimming. Invariably, my mom would say to me, Mark, you're not leaving the house until you get such and such done. Well, such and such never seemed as important to me as getting to the lake, okay? So in rebellion, in apatheia, that's where the word apathetic comes from, or pathetic, in apatheia, 
I would jump on my bike and I would run down to the lake. And I would either be swimming or I'd be fishing and, and only to hear the crackle of stones along the road behind me, knowing my mother is sitting in a car glaring at me right now. Mark, get in the car. My, my rebellion was poignant. I, I understand this phrase of disobedience here. But Paul's saying there's something going on here that's much even bigger than that. God has shut up the world, all the planet, in apatheia, in disobedience for a reason, to bring glory to himself, that he might show mercy to all. And here's the theological mouthful part of this. Through millennia, most of humanity has struggled with the thought that there is a sovereign, righteous, omnipotent God, and yet we live in the presence of evil. How do you balance the two? Why would an omnipotent God who is righteous let evil in the world in the first place? So every time we see something explode or blow up or somebody die or somebody hurt, we say, why would God let that happen? And many people have let that question separate them from a relationship with God. Most people look at the Bible and say, I want an explanation for this. How do I balance this explanation of God's righteousness with the presence of evil? And every person has wondered, where did evil come from? Why did God allow it to enter? And the Bible does answer that question. We're not going to spend much time with it right now. But Paul gives a partial response to it. Part of the answer is found right here. He says, God did something. God shut up this planet in disobedience so that he would show mercy to everyone. Now, let me be Captain Obvious with you for just a minute. Sin is displayed in disobedience. But the rebellion provides the method by which God can put his grace and his mercy on display. In other words, if there was never any rebellion, any apatheia, if there was never a Mark running to the lake instead of listening to his mother, there'd be no reason to know what mercy is. So that's why you find Peter in the Bible saying the angels in heaven, they long to look into the issue of salvation because it doesn't make sense to them. They can't get their mind around it. And they're bigger, stronger, smarter, faster than you. They've been around a lot longer than us, and yet they long to look into something that's a mystery. Why? Because they never had to experience the mercy of God. The fallen angels needed it, but they're never going to get it because God shut them off for eternity. But the holy angels, they've never rebelled. They've never committed apatheia against God. There's been no disobedience, so salvation is a mystery to them. But it's been extended to you and I. And in the disobedience, it provides the expression of God's mercy. So Paul says the whole planet, Jew and Gentile alike, is found in disobedience in order that he would show his mercy to those who would repent of sin. Because by nature, God is Savior. And to display that, he allows free will. So if I boil this down into a sentence, here's the sentence. God allowed free will, and we took that free will, and we chose sin because we love it. And as a result, God displays his mercy. 
and puts his glory on display. So that's why Paul ends with this doxology. Not even going to break it apart for you. I just want you to drink it in. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Do you notice that it's not even the unrevealed things about God that he's speaking of? It's the things we actually know about. And they're so magnificent. We can't even begin to get our brain around them. Even those things that give us a partial understanding, they conceal elements that we can't begin to imagine because God's capacity and his nature is wholly beyond human understanding. And you will spend eternity. I promise you, you will not be bored in eternity. You will spend eternity discovering the nature and the character and the nuances of God and all that he has created. And it's so awesome, it staggers even the most mature mind like Paul. So Paul becomes a songwriter, and he breaks out with this doxology, and it's spectacular. And I want you to check this. It's in the midst of his hurt that he praises God. My nation has abandoned Jesus. I would go to hell for those people. But praise you, God, you are awesome because you're working a plan and something's going on in the background. And although I don't understand everything, even though you set my nation aside, you are magnificent. So he's unable to further explain an infinite God. It's like, I'm out. I can't go any further. I'll just praise him. So he ends with verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the what, church? The, the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do wish that we could begin to imagine and understand all there is to know about you, but then we would be omniscient and we'll never get there. So we continue to strive and we continue to press on. We continue to work to try and find ourselves being more and more Christ-like. And yet we struggle because we know what it is to live in the midst of sin. First of all, we praise you for forgiving us for our sins yesterday and today and tomorrow. Praise you for sending us a Savior. And because you did that, Father, we even further can recognize even just components of how magnificent you are and the glory that's due your name. So I pray that you would send us out the door right now with a desire and a passion in our heart to let what we read in 1 Corinthians be true of us, that everything we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that it would bring glory to you. And we recognize we will continue to miss the mark. And in that, we thank you for being merciful and gracious. But help us, Father, each day, even this afternoon, even at 12.15 this afternoon, to look for ways to bring glory and praise to you because you're worth it. And we praise you in the name of our magnificent returning king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.